Yep. Yep. All right, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second edition of Podcast Versus Everyone. Uh, I'm Craig Powers of KookCenter.com, and with me is uh, Jeff Neusser. Uh Jeff, say hi. Hi. Oh, just a hi this week. No, hi, Jeff. No smart-ass anything. Well, you didn't uh, tell me to say hi, Jeff. Otherwise, I would have said hi, Jeff. Oh, English teacher coming through right there. So, uh, yeah, you guys probably might hear some uh, noises of the family in the background for me this week. That's because we are recording earlier in the day. Hey, there's a baby crying baby. So, um, yeah, uh, that delivered right away. <laughs> um, <but> anyway, <laughs> we so, did not plan that. We did not plan that. <laughs> um, but, yeah, anyway, so I apologize for that. But actually, I don't apologize for that because I don't care. Because um, we don't care. We don't care. and that's, You're probably going to hate it, and that's okay. Yeah. Well, uh, typically we're going to start out with what you're drinking, but today I want to uh, start out with something a little special. Um, Edgar Martinez is officially a Hall of Famer. Woo-woo! Woo! Um, yeah, so it, uh, um, I think thanks to um, not Mr. Tibbs, Ryan Thibodeau, uh, the ballot tracker guy, uh, we kind of knew it was going to happen today. Uh, which is, for me, it makes it kind of fun to follow along uh, the months leading up to it, uh, seeing when he's gaining votes, all this stuff. Um, but uh, so I think a lot of us, we weren't too surprised, uh, but it was still really cool to hear today. For sure. I was, uh, you know, it was just, it was exciting. I mean, I think after last year, it felt like, um, you know, it was sort of inevitable. Yep. But at the same time, you know, you kind of feel like, well, you know, maybe, maybe not, you know, like, I mean, you just, you never really know with the baseball guys. I mean, particular one thing I was doing, uh, you know, kind of right before we went on, cause I, I'd kind of forgotten was, um, you know, looking at his, his historic vote totals over the last 10 years and just kind of seeing how, you know, initially he started off pretty strong, I think like 35% or something, which, you know, was not a, you know, not a bad number at all for a first year and was actually pretty, pretty encouraging, you know, given the, um, you know, people wondering if, if a DH was going to make it and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, as it went on a couple of years, then it dropped down to like 25%. It was like, what the heck is going on? And I think that, you know, I think for some voters, I mean, even though they're allowed to vote for up to 10 guys, I just, I think there are some voters that really will only vote for like three or four. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And then, and and there was a few years there with uh, guys like Randy Johnson or or whatever guys who were you know really shoe in candidates, um, who, you know who I think basically you had like all these really strong guys come through over a couple of years, kind of pushed him back down the ballot, and then you know as time went on, he kind of you know gained strength, gained strength, and then I think you know definitely benefited this year from you know what I would say you know overall outside of Mariano Rivera and his. Uh, unanimous selection which is just you know kind of bizarre but um outside of him you know you might consider it a a, you know a moderately weak class um you know i never really thought of roy halliday as a first ballot hall of famer i mean obviously other people did but um you know with him and so anyway it's just kind of um you know i think he definitely benefited from you know kind of sort of having to wait his turn but um but awesome for him to to finally get in this year yeah and i think he benefited from uh, in the last 10 years, you saw a lot more uh, younger and online type writers uh, get, you know, get to the threshold where they're qualified to vote. Um, obviously, um, analytics, uh, advanced analytics, looking at 
you know, wins above placement, things like that. Uh, looking more at uh, value uh, per, you know, game and at bat rather than looking at a, you, you know, just t- tallying up stats, which I think is kind of the reason why um, you, you'll still see guys like that get uh, uh, voted in by the Veterans Committee because, uh, you know, Harold Baines was a prime example of that. He had way more hits than Edgar, but obviously, like, on a, you know, per at-bat basis, he wasn't nearly as valuable. Um, but, uh, but, you know, Edgar really, uh, I think he uh, benefited from that and he benefited from kind of a great marketing push by the Mariners and a great marketing push by just Mariners fans and Edgar fans. And then, you know, the guys who did believe that he belonged in the Hall of Fame kind of really pushed for him. And, and, and it's cool to see, you know, how, you know, attitudes changed over the last 10 years. Yeah. And I think people got smarter, you know, I mean, it's, you know, when you look at a guy who had a career 418 on base percentage, you know, and it's okay. So, I mean, this may be just kind of one example, but, you know, you look at a guy like Ichiro, right? He's going to get into the Hall of Fame someday with, you know, a billion hits. But, you know, if you if you took, you know, hits plus walks for Ichiro, you know, and put them together and we're like, OK, well, how many more? And I have no idea off the top of my head, but how many more would he have than Edgar Martinez? You know, maybe not many more, you know, cause it's just, it, you know, getting on base as we sort of, as people sort of realize the value of just simply getting on base and the value of also, you know, not necessarily just hitting a home run, you know, the value of hitting a double or, um, whatever. So anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of cool to see, uh, people just kind of getting smarter except for Keith Olbermann, who is, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, I have no idea what his problem is with, uh, um, with Edgar Martinez, particularly if you have no problem voting for relievers, I don't know why you would have a problem voting for a DH who actually plays in more innings than a reliever does. But at any rate, you know, good for uh, good for Edgar, good for uh, baseball people sort of getting smarter about what actually adds value to a baseball game. Um, And just, you know, pretty awesome day for Mariners fans to to get a guy who uh, who we don't have to share with anybody else. I heard somebody put it that way today that it's a guy we don't have to share. He was ours the whole time and and uh, and he's still ours alone. So. Pretty cool. Yeah, very cool. Um, I'm not going to lie, I shed a few tears uh, this afternoon. Um, it was pretty awesome. Uh, it was just one of those moments that I've been waiting for. And like you said, it looked like it was kind of never going to happen for a bit. But anyway, so uh, I'll segue into what you're drinking. Um, I have my beer definitely has a lot to do with what we just talked about. So uh, I'll let you start, Jeff. What, what you drinking? Yeah, so uh, I am not drinking again. I'm I'm still keto, so I, I am not drinking tonight. Um, but I did drink on Sunday while I was playing poker, and uh, with my buddies. And I had a, had a crowler from Skookum. I said so last week. I said I was going to drink the uh, I was going to drink the worldwide stout, the vanilla bourbon barrel aged worldwide stout. I decided not to do that because I was over at somebody's house and wanted to be able to not crash my car. So. <laughs> Um, so I drank uh, part of the crowler. I actually shared it with somebody because, again, um, was not prepared to drink an entire 32-ounce can of, of, uh, of beer. So I drank uh, um, Zero Visibility by Skookum, which is a, a hazy IPA. And I mentioned last week that I really like hazy IPAs are sort of my favorite style. Um, what's interesting about this one is that, um, you know, a lot of the, you know, kind of more trendy hazy IPAs are, are extremely citrusy. Um, almost sort of a, a very kind of almost like a crushable type drink. Like it's just so nice and easy drinking. 
Um, this is, you know, it definitely has those citrusy notes, but um, is a little more bitter on the back end, like a traditional IPA. So it's kind of this really, um, I don't know, it's just this really fun beer that uh, that's got these sort of the, 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 you know, just enough bitterness on the back end to kind of, kind of make you think of a more of a traditional West Coast IPA. It's very good. Yeah, um, Skookum is an awesome brewery. Uh, I know that uh, when you go north, um, you stop there, pick up crawlers, leave your kids in the car. Yeah, uh, cool. that's that's one of the the bummers is there's a lot of kids in the brewery, and you kind of have to drive if you're down south, like as you kind of have to drive pretty far north to get to them. Um, and Hollis Wood, he's kind of a an old school OG Seattle beer nerd. He's the head brewer, and he's a He's an awesome guy, and he's just an awesome brewer. Pretty much everything they crank out is on point. And the interesting thing about Skookum is Hollis has brewed there for um, coming on like eight or nine years now, and he wasn't really putting out anything that was kind of blowing anyone's minds off, like blowing anyone's minds, like for you know long until about three years ago. Um, he put out this uh, hazy IPA called Billy, Billowing Waves. And even though Skookum has been around for so long that, you know, they were kind of just making this Amber, Amber's Hot Friend. They were making kind of basic IPAs and stuff, doing the essentially the cheap, cheaper beers to make. Um, but basically he earned the uh, trust of the owners of the brewery to be able to buy more expensive ingredients. So like these hazy IPAs uh, have a, a kind of a, a bigger hop bill because you're dry hopping a lot. That's they're more expensive, sort of newer designer type hops uh, often, um, and and you know the grain bill is a little different. You're using like oats and things like that, so there there's more specialty grains in there, and so it's 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 a uh, these cost a lot more to make, um, and and he's 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 sort of gotten them to let him do that, like do bourbon barrel aged barley wines and stouts, and it's really cool. And now you know Skookum is really one of the the best breweries in Washington, and and putting out some of the the coolest stuff and, and stuff that, you know, every time I see them on tap, I'm, and I, and I think that's the first one I told you a long time ago, like, Hey, if you see a Skookum, always yep. try to Skookum. Right. And so, yep. so yeah. So, um, go Hollisswood, go Skookum. Uh, Jeff, how would you rate that on our Gardner Minshew scale? So given the, uh, bitterness on the back end of the finish on that, um, I would go ahead and put it at, uh, like, let, let's go with uh, Gardner Minshew's pass to Aesop Winston to beat Utah for all the salt to the Utes. So it's like this bitterness for them that's a pleasant finish for me. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful rating. Also, one of my lo- like one of the best plays of the season. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, yep. Which is fitting for Skookum. So um, my beer, I put, you know, as you know, I'm probably going to put often way too much thought into these beers um so my beer is definitely tied to edgar's election today to the hall of fame um so as you know edgar's first year okay so let me rewind a bit last uh, episode i said the old I, I drank a beer from 2009 and then i said oh i think my oldest beer in my cellar is from 2012 now oh and that is wrong i'll you know I'll issue a correction fake news I'm sorry, guys. Um, I went back and I looked at my spreadsheet and I found out that I had a beer from 2005 <laughs> and I had this beer from 2010. Uh, they're actually the same beer, just bottled different years. Um, so it's called uh, Goose Jardin. Uh, Jardin is a lambic producer from Belgium. So lambic is a spontaneously fermented beer 
which means they kind of leave the beer out to be uh, uh, fermented by natural yeast. And then for a goose, they throw it into oak barrels or fooders and then blend, you know, three years of that. So it takes a long time to make this beer. So this beer requires a lot of patience to make. Uh, and Edgar's uh, Hall of Fame election required a lot of patience. And, and it kind of, and this goose style, um, it actually was super uh, out of vogue in the 80s. Um, a lot of these goose makers, even the ones that are world renowned now, were uh, like so for example uh cantillon uh they're they're uh one like the one one of the true um always to traditional style lambic producers uh, they don't produce like the back sugared ones that you see from lindemans um they're always going to do that traditional style and they nearly went out of business in the 80s uh they had to open up a museum of goose um in in brussels and essentially what uh, Jean Vanois, the, uh, the head brewer, has said is like, if we didn't have that museum of goose, we would have went out of business. Like, it, and he said he had to beg people to buy his beer. Like he had to beg bars to put it on tap. He had to because it was such an unpopular style. And then this guy named Michael Jackson, <laughs> um, not the singer, uh, he was a famous beer blogger who uh, is now dead, but he went on these tours of Belgium and drink all the beer. And he basically sang the praises of these Lambic styles. And so by the 90s, they have become more in favor. And now they're like these super sought after beers. I know I've shared a few with you, Jeff, especially though I've shared a few of the Cantillons with you. Yep. Those are yep. super, if the, those don't sit on the shelves in the U.S. Uh, not that much comes to the U.S., but if you put it on a shelf, it'd be gone in a second. Um, so it's not, so... It, it's just it's funny how like so it's similar to Edgar you know he was he started off well like he he was a style of people he was a style that people committed to 36% on his first one but then about 2015 it looked like his his Hall of Fame thing was dead in the water and then he had this resurgence over uh, recent years um, and then this uh, Goose Jardin one they're they're not like the highest end like highest end highest sought after. Uh, goose producer, but they make some excellent ones, and you can find them in the U.S. Uh, at finer beer shops. You know, seasonally when they come out. Um, I can't tell you when they usually come out. It's kind of random. Whenever Shelton Brothers, I think, brings them over, but uh, I'd highly recommend. You know, they're usually uh, a little better price, a little easier to obtain than some of the high-end ones like uh, Cantillon or Dufontaine. Um, so, um, how I'm going to rate this beer on the Gardner Minshew scale? Um, so I'm thinking about. Gardner put up great numbers against Oregon State this year. Just five touchdowns, 400-ish yards, just e had an easy time. Um, so, you know, on, on paper it looked great. Um, but actually, you know, if you look at Luke Falk's numbers against Oregon State, he tore them apart. <laughs> like 4-0 and just, I think he threw for 22 touchdown passes in four games or whatever. So, um, beating up on Oregon State is just a great and fun thing. Uh, just a great style, uh, but Gardner Minshew wasn't necessarily the um, wasn't necessarily the uh, like best style of it. Gardner Minshew's Oregon State wasn't necessarily the best, but it's just one of many of a delicious style uh, and easy to access now because uh, that video is pretty easy to access on YouTube. So yeah, so that's uh, that's what I'm drinking. Um, some uh, goose. Um, Sounds hope you fantastic. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, it is uh, 10 years old and 
Um, it is drinking quite quite well. What goose will do? Um, goose is made to age, really. Um, uh, there's kind of some uh, live yeast on the bottle. It'll it'll uh, it'll um, take on different characteristics as it ages. Um, like a lot of the goose I'll put on the best on date will be 20 years out. <laughs> so um, I have a few that I'm trying to save. And I got one that's already 14 years old on this, which I didn't acquire 14 years ago when I was. Uh, uh, 20, but I, <laughs> I, I've since acquired it. Um, but, uh, so yeah, this is excellent. It's gotten really funked up. So it's got a lot of that. You can taste the, uh, the Flanders region of Belgium in it. Um, Love that. yeah. And so, <laughs> so it's delicious. And I know you've had, uh, I've shared some of these with you and I know you've enjoyed them as well. I have. So yeah, that's what we drank in. Um, and uh, not quite the big beer that I had last week, so uh, it's it's a smaller bottle and much less alcohol. <laughs> um, it's earlier in the night. <laughs> yeah, sometimes those are really good combinations. Yeah. So um, I want to transition to the part where I wish I had stronger alcohol, is where we talk about WSU. <laughs> um, so usually WSU is we're we're going to talk about basketball a lot, but. Um, Ken Wilson, our, uh, one of our prized assistants, has now moved on to Oregon, where uh, several other Leech assistants have uh, moved on recently. Um, Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, like this, this is terrible. Um, I, you know, I, I know. It's kind of what I wrote in the story, but, but you know, just to say that uh, he was a guy who – um was really sort of our seemed like our, our most valuable recruiter on defense um you know was really key in landing a lot of uh of defensive linemen linebacker types uh just a high energy dude you know was was the uh, the longest tenured guy on staff um he had uh, he joined uh, joined the staff from nevada after uh after leach's first year so you know just a guy who's been through a lot of this success and uh, you know, you always want to keep guys like that around, but you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it, coaching profession's hard. And if you get a better opportunity, um, you know, you got to take it. And I'm sure for him, I, you know, nothing's come out as far as terms or anything like that, but you know, the other guys who've left for Oregon, and this is the fourth year in a row, Oregon <laughs> has taken a WCU assistant, which is sort of bananas. Yeah. Um, every single one of those guys has moved on with a pay raise um, and or a uh, uh, an increase in responsibilities. So, um, so you can't fault him for that. You know, assistant. The life of an assistant coach is tough. Um, you know, and I'm sure when he was grinding it out at Nevada, um, you know, he he probably you know dreamed of the day when he could recruit to a guy a place like you know Oregon and, and their facilities and mm-hmm. and everything else there. So, you know, I don't blame the guy. I'm not. I have no ill will whatsoever. It sucks. I wish he'd stayed and. I think it's viable to sort of feel both of those things. Yeah, and um, um, he'll he'll get to experience what it's like to lose to WSU on a yearly basis now, so that's good for him. Yeah, uh, he'll have good company with uh, so, Joe Salve and Jim Mastro. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, um, I uh, decided to look at his Twitter. He's one of the few coaches I followed on Twitter that hadn't blocked me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he had, you know, he's got, you know. Uh, uh, he's got his uh, all his profile is uh, Ken Wilson, or he, you know he's coach at University of Oregon, blah 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 all that. So I I look on his pin tweet, 
his his uh his link by the way is still wcougars.com um even though he's got like an oregon helmet as his uh as his avatar and all that stuff and you know he says he's the oregon uh, what is he linebackers coach and and um so i look at his pin tweet it's from 2016 and he's flying to, it's a picture from an airplane of pullman and said i'm leaving pullman a beautiful day uh there there's no better place to be no better school to go to in the u.s and so I had to play, have a little fun with it. I screen grabbed that. I poked fun of him on Twitter, and uh, Coog seemed to be enjoying that. Um, you know, so it's really nice to have a coach of another program uh, talking about how you're the best place to be. So that that's always fun. And also, definitely a recruiting advantage right there. Yep. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know. I, I think I'd be using that if I was at WSU. Look, you know, our coach thinks this is the best place. So yeah, I'd be able to put that to good use. Yeah. And so let's uh, let's move on to talking about, once again, our most favorite sport in the world, Washington State University basketball. Um, hey, we won this weekend. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, they did, but, I mean, they played Cal. I mean, so, how, how, how bad is Cal? Like, oh, my God. Cal's really bad. Cal is like, fire your coach right now, bad. Like... And we're yeah. are you coach right now. About yeah, it. and so are we. And so, like, we know it when we see it, right? Yeah. Like, like if you're – I mean, so, you know, we as, – as we talked about last week, we, we definitely spend a fair amount of time looking at, uh, you know, just sort of basic basketball analytics. And um, one of the things I like about basketball analytics is they're pretty accessible. Um, if, you, if you just, like, spend more than – like, if you're willing to spend more than 30 seconds thinking about it, um, it's pretty accessible. Most of the stats are, are rate based, which means, you know, percentages. And, and I would I would hope to God that most of you listening would be able to, to understand percentages. Right. And so, um, you know, the other one is uh, things per something. Right. So the big measure of offense and defense is how many points either you score or allow per possession. And then, of course, Ken Pomeroy makes one final step, which is adjusting it for the level of opponent. Right. So. Cal's defense, we talked about this last week, but I just kind of want to drive home kind of the point here. Cal's defense is ranked 336th in Division One in adjusted defensive efficiency. Like they are they are quite literally almost the worst defense in Division One. And 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 frankly, that should be impossible if you have to, if you have high major or even mid-major athletes on your roster. <laughs> like, like, I mean, even Ernie Kent's defense isn't that bad. Right. So that's where I'm like, man, if, if your defense is that putrid, that that's like, like I said, that, that's like fire your coach on the spot type stuff. And, uh, Ernie Kent just ought to be thanking his lucky stars that Y King Jones exists. Otherwise I'm pretty sure he'd be staring at a winless pack 12 season this year. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah you so yes, Cal's terrible. Beat the hell out of them. Uh, you know, I, it almost feels like they were saving Franks to come back for that game and not come back for Utah because he really yeah. Make yeah. sure you get make sure you get the one that you can get right. Exactly, and I you know Franks looked kind of like a man among boys when he wanted to, and and which you know a big thing about him is that he always doesn't doesn't always want to. 
Um, but uh, yeah, he he looked pretty. He had a pretty easy twenty-two points, and uh, and everyone had a pretty easy eighty-one points. And it was it was uh, um, e- and even the Cal's offense looked terrible. Like it, it to make WSC's defense look decent. Like it just uh, they they just they're in bad a bad bad place, and uh, uh, it's really pretty, really really bad. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's Cal's kind of this. You know, you expect them to have. Uh, you know, in, have more money, all this stuff, but, you know, they, they're probably one of the institutions that is in worse financial shape than we are, even. And and it's really kind of shown, I think, recently in their athletics and football and basketball, especially um, in the in the real money athletics. And, and, and so uh, it's nice. Uh, they can be uh, the one team that we beat. Um, and then, of course, Stanford came along, and, and that was actually a game that, you were thinking maybe they had a chance, but again, like Stanford kind of, you know, truly tr- like kind of kept them at arm's length most of the second half. Uh, and, and we saw kind of them have, uh, you know, you saw the, the talent disparity and everything kind of come to play in the second half. There wasn't, yeah, I, it, I watched the game and I didn't really feel like WSU was really threatening all that much. Um, like they just didn't have quite enough to get over the top against Stanford. Well, and Ken Pomeroy would definitely agree with you. I'm looking at the uh, win probability graph. So for those of you that um, don't know what a win probability graph is, it basically just at any point in the game, given the score and given the quality of the two teams, um, what's the likelihood that, you know, a certain team is going to win. And so uh, WSU's win probability was never above 50% um, after the nine minute mark of the first half. So that was the only time at which it was like, okay, you know, they're they're sort of even just very slightly favored to win it. Um, and even when they closed within five with, you know, like whatever it was, three and a half minutes left, um, that still only dropped Stanford's win probability to 84%. So it, it was it was kind of what you said. Like they, they kind of were seemingly kind of getting close. And it just, like you said, it never really felt like – it was ever actually close to getting over the hump. And, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's what happens when you play a team that, um, you know, Stanford's defensive strength is denying three point shots. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Craig and I talk about this uh, all the time as, as sort of a basic um, tenet of three point defense. Most of the time people look at three point defense as what's the percentage that you allow. Um, Ken Pomeroy did a pretty long study on three-point defense and really, you know, again, you know, you probably don't want to read the whole thing. So I'll boil it down for you. Essentially, the only three-pointer you can truly affect is the one that the other team never takes. And so really good three-point defense actually prevents teams from shooting threes. And once teams shoot a three, then you're, it's kind of out of your hands because teams often pass up um, contested threes, right? So most of the threes that teams take are open or semi-open. Mm-hmm. So when a shot is not open, then teams aren't taking them. So Stanford's opponents had one of the lowest um, three-point um, ratios of three-point shots to two-point shots. Um, and so WSU, of course, being one of the leaders in the country of highest ratios of three-point shots to two-point shots, um, it was kind of like, okay, these two styles, well, Stanford's style, uh, particularly in the second half, really won out, and, and WSU just didn't really have, unfortunately, but not surprisingly, um, really any other strategies for attacking Stanford. And it seemed like they just kind of withered away until they started shooting some desperation threes and, you know, hit one and, 
you know, to kind of get close, but, but not really. Yeah. And, uh, so basically in summation, WC is not that good. Um, but an uh, interesting thing <laughs> that, that you pointed out to me, uh, I don't know where you got the uh, little tidbit from, but, uh, so, uh, someone pointed out the uh, rebounding, uh, margin. Maybe. Oh yes. WSU lost the rebounding battle. Uh, so, uh, so this is going to bring us into our first of a periodic segment, which we'll call that stat doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, so rebounding margin as kind of uh, points per possession stuff has actually taken hold pretty well uh, around uh, and Kempom has taken hold pretty well. Like in a lot of broadcasts you see, you, you see kind of um, efficiency mentioned casually but rebounding margin is still kind of the most dominant rebounding stat that you see. Um, so, Jeff, uh, break it down. Um, what I, I believe they were out rebounded by six or something, something like that. Yeah. So somebody, you know, said, "Oh, WSU lost the rebounding battle, and that's part of where they lost the game." And um, they they really didn't because uh, as I, as I started looking at the Again, we're talking percentages here, right? Rate-based stats. Um, defensive rebounding and offensive rebounding percentages. So we look at those as a, as a function of the total, total number of rebounds available, right? What, what percentage of the available rebounds did they get? And you want to a lot of times look at it in terms of offensive and defensive because those really are two different skill sets, right? I mean, think about and, and what makes – yeah, as well. In strategy as well, yeah. So what makes a great defensive rebounder? The ability to box out. The, you know, a lot of times your best rebounders are big-bodied guys, right? Guys like Aaron Baines, who was a dominant, dominant defensive rebounder. And then you think of who? Okay, so who are your elite offensive rebounders? Well, those are often guys who um, are kind of skinnier and springier, and they have the ability to to slither into tight spaces and get their hands on balls, you know, things like that. So. Number one, different skill sets. And then number two, it's a function of opportunity, right? So Craig just mentioned that, um, you know, style plays into it to some degree. So, you know, you've got Tony Bennett teams, we, which we're all very well aware, um, just decided we're not even going to try an offensive rebound unless we already happen to be under the basket. Otherwise, everybody else drops back to prevent transition. Okay. And then you got other teams. Um, if anybody ever watches Frank Martin at South Carolina, I mean, they just go they just go absolutely bonkers crashing the offensive glass. So different style strategy. And then beyond that, it's a function of opportunity with, so for example, defensive rebounding percentage, um, how many shots did the other team miss, right? So like you can't get a lot of offense or defensive rebounds, per se, you know, just in raw number if the other team doesn't miss many shots. And then vice versa, if you're missing a ton of shots, the other team is naturally going to have more rebounds just because. So so that was the case in this game when in actuality, so even though the raw numbers said, oh, Stanford was the dominant rebounding team, um, in terms of percentages, uh, Stanford's defensive rebounding percentage was 79.5%. So they got 79.5 or 80% of the misses that WSU had. Um, WSU got 79.2 of Stanford's misses. So, <laughs> so basically it was, it was basically a tie, like it was dead even. Um, and the only thing that accounted for the difference was simply WSU missed a bunch more shots, which was reflected in their 66 points over, I don't know how many possessions, 71 possessions, which is awful. And, uh, that's, so that's how Stanford ends up with more rebounds. So if you want to be a smarter basketball fan, 
Um, and you really want to kind of know um, kind of how how a team really did rebounding. First of all, you know, break it up, offensive, defensive, rebounding percentage, and then look at the percentage and see, you know, who was really gobbling up the larger percentage of shots. That gives you a much more accurate picture of, uh, of uh, who was more dominant on the glass. And then if you want to read up on it just a tiny bit, um, John, John Gassaway, a guy that Craig and I used to write with at Basketball Prospectus, uh, did a post uh, somewhere sometime. I can't remember for who he did it, but um, called Rebounding Margin Must Die. So you can read that, and, and he does a better job of explaining it than I did. Yeah, and so uh, basically to summarize, uh, the reason why rebounding margin isn't what you think it is is because there's a lot of factors that play into that margin that have nothing to do with rebounding, uh, such as turnovers and missed shots that will limit the opportunities uh, for one team to grab defensive rebounds. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll point out that like if you're playing defense and you're forcing a lot of turnovers, uh, you're going to get less defensive rebounds because the other team is taking less shots. Uh, so there, there's there's just a lot of factors into uh, rebounding margin. Um, it really shouldn't be something that's taken as a whole. Uh, it should be split into defensive and offensive because there's so much that goes into strategy and the and, and, and the skill sets. Um, and and so basically that's what we're saying. Um, that's kind of our first segment on that stat. What doesn't mean when you think it means. We're going to continue being annoying about the stats that we like and telling you why the stats that you like are stupid. Um, and so be, expect more of that. Uh, before we move on out of uh, WSU, I wanted to point out that um, uh, last week I kind of outed you as a Christian man, Jeff, which you yeah. know, I feel bad about that because, you know, I didn't even talk about my own uh, religious beliefs. And uh, um, I, I'm, I'm going to say it. I am actually a Claytheist. Uh, because uh, Clay Thompson's <laughs> shooting form is the most pure thing in the universe, uh, which he had on display last night, hitting his first 10 three-pointers, tying an NBA record, going 10 of 11 overall. Uh, he, he, he's, he's had some struggles uh, shooting this year, but uh, he still that pure form will break him out of any slump any time and I think makes him probably one of the... Uh, Steph might have better overall percentages, but I don't think anyone shoots like Clay when he gets hot. No, it's it's the most uh, repeatable shooting form I think in the entire world, <laughs> honestly. And uh, one of these days, you and I we're gonna have to do a little uh, Tony Bennett fanfic and imagine what might have happened <laughs> if uh, if Tony Bennett had never left and and just kind of what uh what what where we might be right now if Tony had just stuck around for like I don't know three more years you know <laughs> something like that cuz it's uh, it's not hard to imagine um a world in which WC basketball is 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 very different if he had somehow stuck around and yeah. and really gotten the most out of Clay and and not that Ken Bone didn't get the most out of Clay I think Ken Bone did a good job with him but you know just Clay as as a centerpiece of a team coached by Tony Bennett I think would be uh um, would be a lot of fun. Would be a lot of fun. Absolutely. Um, so yes, uh, if, if you want to know more about the uh, Church of Claytheism, uh, there's some info online. Just go ahead and Google it. Um, it's uh, it, you know I I, I I truly believe in it. And uh, um, but I, I don't want to preach too much. I you know I hate that. Uh, so um, to do something that's even more uh, kind of cringy, we're going to move on into talking about some politics. Uh, so if you hate that, uh, this section's called Coastal Elites, so you can guess where we align. 
um, go ahead and uh, either fast forward to when we're talking about pop culture or whatever, or just you know turn it off right now if you just wanted to hear us talk about WSU and beer and Edgar. Um, so anyway, so yeah, let's move on into uh, our Coastal Elites segment, Jeff. Um, I would say this this isn't the most like important political uh, thing of the week, but it's certainly the most viral, um, which uh, was this interaction with some uh, Covington Catholic High School students uh, with some uh, Native Americans at uh, March for Life in uh, in D.C. So, um, Jeff, kind of when you saw that video initially. What were your thoughts? Um, you know, it, it it's kind of hard to describe exactly what I was feeling. Um, mostly just, I guess I was I was embarrassed for those kids, um, and I felt a little bit of honestly a little bit of shame as an educator. Um, you know, I, I would just I don't know. Like I, I watched it and and just thought how like why you know it, it just th- there are so many things right now that do just sort of make me think that particular thing like why you know why does why 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 is this happening why does why why do these kids think this is amusing right and i mean and i i you know i have some sense of why you know i i've done enough um, you know, studying of, you know, sort of racial dynamics and power dynamics and things like that to kind of understand why it happens, you know, when you've got, you know, dominant, um, white kids and, and the privilege that they enjoy, um, to, to look down their nose at someone, a, a teenager in particular, um, you know, sort of looking, looking in that way towards, um, towards someone who's older than him. And, um, because he's native, um, the, the, just the inherent superiority in that and, you know, so I understand why, but but just the, the part that gets me sort of crushes me to my soul is is you know it just it just feels unnecessary and it feels um, heartbreaking that that's still a thing, right? That we we haven't moved past this right. uh, this point at which we can just sort of be like, yeah, that's cool, man. They're marching for that. That's neat, you know. And even if and I, I know I'm sure you're going to get into this, you know, this whole got to hear both sides thing that apparently is taking place at the moment, even if you believe that somehow, um, you know, the Native American, the indigenous people's march, you know, invaded their space or something, um, you know, their reaction just sort of says everything. You know, you're looking at um, a bunch of smirking white teenagers in MAGA hats, um, basically doing their MAGA thing. And it's um, and really... You know, it's heartbreaking and disgusting and, and just, you know, it really just underscores, um, you know, as, as an educator, why I do what I do um, in, in the hopes that, you know, the kids that leave my classroom wouldn't behave in a similar fashion. Well, yeah, and, and you kind of talked about the So um, uh, since, you know, the initial reaction, uh, you, you see uh, uh, there was this other side put out and and. And kind of what you'll see is, oh, you'll see people say, oh, these kids were just singing along with them. Or, you know, uh, they were just trying to have a good time with them. They were singing the songs. Well, I don't know how often you watched a group of teenage boys. Those were not, like, the looks on their faces were not, you know, of genuine enjoyment and involvement in the, in the song the the songs that uh, the, that man was playing so uh, it, that you know there's the look on their faces the way they're dancing around in quite a mocking fashion 
Like it, it, it there was a, there was an article on Deadspin, uh, which you know whatever you think of Deadspin, uh, you know, admittedly they have some crap on there, but they also they also have some pretty good things. Excuse me. Um, uh, basically, it said you know don't don't be afraid to believe you know what your eyes saw, and because what we've seen is in the day in the coming days you've seen a lot of journalists kind of walk back their original reaction because they're kind of they, they want to be seen as neutral and playing both sides and a lot of this is driven by a pr firm that that was basically hired and this is why you're seeing the kid go on like a media tour now uh and jeff you've been a journalist uh, it was sports and i've been a journalist in technology um when you're a journalist, you get all sorts of uh, emails and, and, and messages from PR firms um, wanting to drive the message in your writing, wanting to drive the message in whatever you're doing. And for me, one of the, one of the key things is, is sort of not letting that happen as a journalist. You know, uh, you, you'll see a lot of journalists that are just straight up rude to PR firms because they're so... Um, they're so aggressive about uh, trying to get you to talk about what they want to talk about. And I think for me, what I see happening is these journalists are falling into what the PR firm wants them to talk about. And the PR firm doesn't care about the both sides. They care about one side. They care about, you know, defending the child, the kids and so, and, and, and the school or whatever, you know? Um, and it's, 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 it's frustrating for me as like a, you know, I very recently a journalist who dealt with PR emails constantly and you had to pick and choose which stories made sense. And you, you had PR people trying to look over your shoulder when you're writing an article, essentially, and trying to guide you. Know, Are you sure? Can, did you have to say that? You don't need to say that. You don't need to you don't need to ask that question, blah, blah, blah. And, and it, it's uh, it, it's frustrating that we've kind of come to this point where a PR firm is dri now driving this narrative and not and not what you know people are seeing not what people are reporting on it's really the pr firm and and who have you know they have a dog in the race and they're protecting the client and and that's that's what they're doing they're not you know they're not trying to paint an accurate picture they're just trying to protect their client and, and that's really frustrating that um a lot of the journalists have taken into that message but i think it says something bigger about kind of where we've been um with the messaging on a lot of uh, in a lot of media now, um, we've seen for the last uh, uh, at least since like a you know initial Rush Limbaugh Newt Gingrich type era, this kind of attack on the liberal media, and which you know there's some truth to some lib you know, liberalism in media, um, but it's more of the the uh, the kind of uh, natural definition of liberal, which is just being open-minded to what's going around. Um, journalism. Um, at its core is to um, be the voice of the voiceless. Um, so being driven by a PR firm and, uh, with someone who has a lot of money to put a message out there, that's not quite the voiceless. Um, a, a Native American man in a marginalized uh, community, uh, that's often the, you know, the voiceless. Um, not necessarily that the journalist has to take that side, but we, we still have to report uh, accurately. Um, so now you'll see things like CNN employing Corey Lewandowski um, and having him on every panel. And, he, you know, he's what 
What are his qualifications? He was a, a campaign campaign manager for Donald Trump. And that so he's now a political analyst on, you know, or has been a political analyst on CNN. And so we're seeing a lot of things like that. And and it's it's getting frustrating. Jeff, I know you and I have talked about this before. This kind of like having to have the token other side, which which then kind of creates this belief that both sides have valid arguments. Yeah, it's I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of objectivity is what it is. Um, you know, it's uh, the dead spin piece that you referenced, I, th I think, put it really well. Um, it, it's almost become a sort of uh, almost a form of virtue signaling where you say, oh, I, I have been open minded and listened to both sides on this. Um, and if you say, oh man, I rushed to judgment and now I'm sort of rethinking that, you know, I mean, it becomes sort of, like I said, this, this virtue signaling where you're like, oh, look at me, I'm very, um, level-headed and objective and I have now weighed all of the evidence. And it's like, you know what? I mean, sometimes the, like the evidence is the evidence, right? Like, like it's not, you know, this isn't something where we need another side. Like it is what it is. I mean, I remember, um, you know, to kind of bring this around to, to, a to, to a related topic, you know, and, and the, the, the fear of actually just calling something what it is, um, you know, I feel like this really kicked into overdrive in the coverage of Trump leading up to the 2016 election, candidate Trump, right? Right. Where he would just – they had never dealt with a candidate before who would just so blatantly lie. And, and they just – they had no idea how to deal with that, right? And so they're used to covering an election in a way where – um, you know, you cover this side and you cover this side and you give them equal time and sure both sides are sort of, you know, fudging the truth and they're trying to twist things to make it look, but everybody's sort of like, you know, playing by the same rules. Well, all of a sudden here comes this guy who's not playing by any rules other than his own. And, and they really, they never, ever, ever really dealt with that. They felt like, okay, well, like, well, the way we normally do this is we kind of try and give candidates equal time. So we're going to, you know, cover this. And they just, they, they never really dealt with what it meant to be objective, which is to just say, you know, no, that thing over there, that's actually bullshit. And that's not true. And that's a lie. And just say it's a lie, you know, and then you get things like, you know, Jamel Hill, you know, sports center anchor who gets on Twitter and gets in all kinds of trouble uh, for saying Donald Trump is a white supremacist like how is that controversial <laughs> like like every bit of everything that's come out of his mouth and every bit of policy he's put forward is a white supremacist agenda and then beyond that we get alexandria ocasio-cortez saying donald trump's a racist and oh my god i can't believe she said that about the president i'm like but the president is a racist like like all of the evidence points at this so look if you want to say i like a president who supports a white supremacist agenda and you know that promotes the white race above other races and you want to say that you know look i support a racist president i'm not racist okay fine but you support a racist president if you want to say it, then fine but that's what it is and so let's let's not try and pretend that we're being objective by saying well I mean, maybe he's not racist. Is he really a white supremacist? Let's, you know, like, like the, like the evidence is in, like, like the verdict is in, this is what it is. And so just own it. And if you're uncomfortable with that, then, then maybe examine your own views. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, um, I don't want to belabor the point too much longer, but it's just, uh, I, I think there's, there's been a, um, we've talked often enough about this, uh, uh kind of the, uh, the, the, the conservative media has really won um, and, the, and, the, and the Republicans have won the messaging over 
uh, the past uh, couple decades. And and now I think there's this legitimate fear, especially if you're in, if you're not in like a su super left leaning, you know, uh, media. And, and if you're in one of the big guys, uh, like, you know, uh, CNN or uh, NPR or something, uh, or CBS, you know, anywhere, you're afraid to kind of stir the pot too much. And, 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 and because you're, you're just going to get this huge backlash um, because the messaging has been drawn up so well that, you know, anything, uh, you know, the, the point where you point out things that are obvious, like, like, you know, Donald Trump lying, Donald Trump saying racist things, uh, then, then you, you suddenly are, uh, you're, you're being biased and you're fake news. And, and, and that's kind of the point. Uh, we've reached, uh, and Facebook certainly uh, helped uh, with that. Um, it'll be interesting. Um, it's it's interesting to me how they uh, they like to play that they're not, you know, uh, uh, a news organization, but they certainly are. Um, and and but I don't want to really get into that. Maybe we'll for another day. But yeah. So um, yeah, um, great points, Jeff. And I, you know, uh, it's it's something that. <laughs> I think to each of our cores uh, impacts us because of work we've done and, and studying and, and everything like that. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll move on to something probably even more controversial. And so last week uh, in our pop culture segment, we kind of were freewheeling it, just trying to see what's going on in the world. And we stumbled upon the Billboard Hot 100. And we noticed three out of the top 13 songs uh, we're in some part, including this guy named Post Malone, which to me, Jeff, I don't know when when I think Post Malone, I think uh, purple and gold jersey, uh, you know, kind of the 90, uh, the mid 90s uh, conference finals, uh, you know, it, uh, John Stockton, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, kind of a drop step to the baseline layup type post Malone. Um, I don't know if that's where he got his name, but uh, that's Carl Malone is what comes to mind when I hear post Malone. Yeah. Or is this post like, is this like after Malone? Is he like some sort of post after incarnation of himself? I, I mean, these are the important questions we need answers to. Well, um, in looking at pictures of him, um, if it, <laughs> has lost a considerable amount of height and uh, added some face tattoos and face tattoos. as well. Cause Carl Malone, uh, even in his, uh, you know, by the end of his NBA career was a real buff guy <laughs> and uh, post Malone is, uh, you know, not, he, a buff guy. not a buff guy. So uh, Jeff, uh, you kind of uh, brought up uh, the homework assignment since you are the teacher um but of the two of us uh of, of both going to listen to some post malone and gather some of our um well thought out opinions of his music and uh why he is so very popular so jeff um i want to hear uh you know how much did you listen to him and and kind of what what were you thinking what's your initial thoughts and then i know you kind of tapped into some some youths uh, to get yeah. some thoughts. Um, uh, so uh, let me hear it. Yeah, so probably unlike all of our 160 listeners from the last week, um, 
who have probably never listened to Post Malone. I listened to like two and a half hours of Post Malone last night. Oh. Yeah, I did. I want look. I wanted to make sure I had a good um, sort of sampling of of what what he does and what his music is and and you know because if you just listen to a few popular songs you, you don't always get a good sense of what the artist is doing and um, i try to be open-minded about music i mean i'm I, like most people i'm pretty set um in the stuff that i really like you know which is the stuff that we listen to when we're in high school and college right so for me that's you know that's grunge that's you know classic rock because that's what i was into so this guy for people who don't know uh post malone is a it's even kind of hard to describe. I mean, I guess just like most plainly you'd describe him as a rapper. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he is a rapper, but, but he's kind of a little bit different than that. Um, there's, there's definitely some, um, some musicality to the beats. It's not just beats. It's um, there's some instrumentals to it. Um, so anyway, he kind of rides this line between rap and, and pop music and um, which I, I think is part of what explains why he's so popular. Um, you know, he comes up with these sort of catchy beats slash melodies um, and then does kind of this rap singing thing with them. Um, but the, the, my biggest takeaway from listening to him was, like all the songs sound the same man and they're kind of depressing yeah so yeah. i don't yeah. know i put you know that that was my first takeaway so yeah i my uh, i didn't listen to two and a half hours i probably listened about an hour of him um uh that's yeah. just because i'm a better student than you are yeah you're, you're a better student uh uh but i so i had found out i had heard a couple of his songs before um which uh, is not that surprising you know you flip through the channels and you hear something uh you know there were some catchy tunes that i know i probably thought oh this is not so bad not knowing it's post malone because I, I really didn't know what post malone was like like and yeah i kind of was like i was expecting a rapper and yeah it's kind of like this sing rap thing that uh you know drake sort of does sometimes but he more traditionally raps as well uh like in uh and but it, it was i was kind of surprised at what to hear but to your point i'm not surprised that he's popular because actually a lot of the beats are you know they're they're pleasant and yeah. they're easy to dance to um my little daughter uh who likes to dance to everything honestly but especially if it's got a nice beat she she was shaking her hips, and um, uh, as a side note, when uh, we we uh, use the um, the Amazon Alexa for a lot of the um, uh, music we listen to, and so we'll just say we we have computer as our uh, um, our way to tell it to come on. And so you know, I, I say computer, play some music, and and she'll uh, she's now she's 14 months old. She she's now figured out. She looks at it and she gets really excited and she kind of starts dancing when she sees the light. She sees the light come on. But anyway, so that's beside the point. But anyway, so um, yeah, some really catchy beats, a lot of repeated uh, sort of choruses and words, <laughs> um, which makes, you know, the, it's the type of thing that gets stuck in your head. Uh, I think the type of thing that the Black Eyed Peas mastered, unlike any other uh, uh, group of just uh, repeating the same thing over and over again. So he repeats his choruses quite a bit and he um in very very catchy beats and he's got kind of this like, kind of pleasant non-threatening voice he does you know 
he does swear and he you know, swear to us on old. I mean, he says fuck and he and he talks about you know, uh, you know, some kind of uh, topics that you don't want your little kid listening to. But also, he's top forty music, so you know that stuff just gets bleeped out anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, but um, but yeah, he's uh, it's uh, I was uh, surprised. Um, there was one I listened to that I recognized, and I realized I saw it like in this. It was from the soup, the new Superman, or I mean, sorry, Spider-Man movie, which yep. I haven't seen, but I saw a video with this song in the background, not knowing what the song was, and I thought it was just like a little short movie, and I thought it was pretty cool, because um, the song fit it pretty well. Um, I couldn't name which one it is right now, honestly, but but Sunflower. yeah, Sunflower. Yeah, Sunflower. I learned all about Sunflower today. Yep, yep, yeah. So it fit like it made a cool little Spider-Man video with it and stuff, and um, so I was like, that's when I've heard, and then uh, there was another couple I've heard, and. And yeah, it's his stuff is you know, um, it's it's definitely top forty type music. It's just and it's and like you said, it's not super easy to define uh, other than pop music. Like because uh, it's he's not really rapping. He he's more kind of uh, sing talking, I guess you should say. Um, and there's definitely some autotune in there. Um, and he is. Uh, uh, which autotune is very popular with uh, hip hop now, so it's not that weird. Um, I think it's kind of an evolution of things that you've seen um, in in uh, uh, kind of pop music because uh, there's a lot more kind of hip hop type elements in pop music than it, um, than maybe when we were uh, younger. Um, so that's kind of a style that's taken over, even if it's you know I kind of think so. This uh, takes me back like college, so. Uh, if you if you just take a nice beat over and you, you put a, a a nice beat that that's got some you know uh, danceability to it, um, and it but also kind of has this kind of cool factor where it's not like super happy it's more of like more of a party vibe um, I think like so uh, when I was in like middle school uh, there was a song called Like a Bird or something or, or, or high school like Like a Bird from Nelly Furtado. Or is this very poppy, girly song like "I'm Like a Bird"? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so, but by my like senior college, Nelly Furtado uh, came out with another album, and it was uh, she hooked up with this producer called Timberland, and it was just these like kind of really dark beats, these kind of dancing club type beats. A um, little bit hip hop influenced, and this like a bird girl is singing uh, more about you know like her sexuality and, and about relationships and everything like that. And you're like, who the hell is this? Like, and just it, that's kind of the influence a, a, a certain beat can have on the, on a track and on the artist. And that's immediately made me think of that. Like, yeah, like this is totally like a lot of what his songs are are super driven by that. That kind of those back that background in, instrumentalization because there's even some like acoustic guitar in there it's it's like pretty weird like it's different than what I expected um, I I don't hate it but I don't think it's particularly awesome I didn't rush to like download it and listen to it uh, more um, I have heard from friends that are like really into hip hop and stuff that he is the worst. Um, you know, I'm not that passionate about it, so I don't really care. Um, uh, you know, I'm like, yeah, it's pleasant. If it came on the radio, I probably wouldn't switch it away right, right away. You know, um, I don't have any strong feelings about it either way, um, which is kind of a 
a really perfect way to kind of find your way into a top 40 and have like three, yeah. 13 songs, you know? Right. Make sure nobody has any strong feelings one way or the other. Um, yeah. I mean, I kind of put it to my students today. So I, I went, I went to the experts on rap music, which is my, my senior English classes. Um, I asked all three of them. I said, you know, I have a very, very serious, important question for you. And they all looked at me, you know, very, uh, intently. And, and I, and I gravely said, you know, what, why do y'all like post Malone? You know? So anyway, so we kicked off this discussion and, and I think that, um, you know, a couple things stuck out. One is, so, so I kind of made the connection to when I was in high school, I mentioned, you know, I, I, child of the nineties, Seattle grunge, all that stuff. And, um, you know, one of the reasons why that music, you know, resonated is, you know, the early nineties, um, were sort of this very angsty time in general. And then of course you resonate with, you know, teenagers and young 20 somethings who of course are going through, you know, all the growing pains of those ages. And, and so then when, you know, Kurt Cobain is out there being his depressed self, like everybody's like, yeah, he totally gets me. Right. I got that same vibe from the students today when I was talking with them, like, like, Oh man, it's just his lyrics. They just, they, the beat, it just, I just love the vibe, man. He just, man, he just gets me. And I'm like, you know, I, so I can kind of understand on that level, um, kind of where, where that is. Um, you know, and then I think the other part is, is that, um, and this is, you know, again, I was, I did a little research. I wanted, I wanted to kind of see what other people thought about why he was popular. Um, and one of the things they pointed out was that, you know, that um, in a in an in an era of streaming music where we don't necessarily listen to entire albums and where we don't necessarily value, you know, a range of musical abilities over the course of, you know, 12 unique songs um, in an era where, you know, you can just pick a couple songs, drop it on your playlist and be like, yeah, dude, Post Malone is awesome. You know, that sort of thing. Um, I think that sort of plays into it too, where you've got a few songs that are catchy and you like, and, and so you play those songs and, you know, I mean, that's how, my God, he had one song that had 1.4 billion with a B plays on Spotify. I was just like, what, yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, holy crap, you know? So anyway, I just, I, I think that's part of it too. So when you've got an artist who, whose, you know, music all sounds sort of, um, very similar. And, and, and it's, that's not even like a huge knock. I mean, I, I, look, I prefer my favorite musicians to have a range of musical abilities, but I'm also not, you know, I'm not above listening to, you know, just some punk rock, listen to the Ramones and listen, I will fight any person who tries to say the Ramones were, um, you know, super diverse in their musical ability. It's like, come on, you know, it's like, that's what they were. And that's what, you know, punk rock was. And so, um, so it's okay. So, you know, I, I, I kind of am leaning towards the idea that Post Malone is, um, you know, kind of 2019's grunge rock, you know, punk rock um, um, thing. Well, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, the, the, I don't think it, it seems, uh, you know, I often think about that kind of like when grunge rock was top 40. Uh, right. I wonder if that was kind of the last hurrah for. Uh, like rock and roll type, like to be the, you know, the regular top 40. Um, and now it's kind of a more, uh, more pop focused type thing. That was such a, I think about it, it was such a unique time. Like, like just to have like that, this kind of weird, uh, like kind of more sad music come out from Seattle. Yeah. And, and that becomes what every kid in Minnesota loves. Like, you know, right. Like, but yeah, anyway, so that's beside the point. But yeah, so Post Malone, um, 
we could say he's uh, in the post Malone era. Yeah, it's really uh, 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 and really exemplifies that. Um, so yeah, um, I give him uh, one post Malones out of one post Malones rating. Yeah, uh, and honestly, like I, I, I it, it's fine. I, I don't care. But yeah, listen, I mean, I, I would throw a couple of his songs in my playlist yeah. if if I didn't have an eleven year old, nine year old, and six year old yeah. who were always listening to music with me. So that's yeah. that's sort of my verdict. Yeah, you know, um, uh, it, uh, before we move on, I, you, you talked about how the, you know, the, your kids just say it really gets you, which is you know, a little funny. Uh, these right. like 17-year-olds <laughs> from, from uh, uh, not like semi-rural Washington are like, <laughs> right. yeah, he right. gets, you know, okay, sure. sure. Um, uh but uh, I, I, when I was in uh, Nashville and I, I worked at a group home and I, you know, I had these kids who, you know, their, their defining characteristic in life is that they wanted to be hard. And so, like, they just had to be hard and, and they respected other people that were super hard about where they went and where they're from and what, what they've experienced and how they act. And, and that was right about the time that Drake started getting, like, he kind of came out with his first single and... I used to just rip on the kids all the time because I'd be like, you know, what I knew Drake from back in the day was a little show called Degrassi. And he played, uh, you know, not such a I mean, he did get shot in the back on that show. So a little bit hard. But I'm like, this guy grew up in the suburbs of Toronto. Um, Probably not like I mean, go ahead and idolize him. But I don't think he's exactly the type of like. A uh, guy that you guys claim to want to be, but if, hey, but they they would always kind of sheepishly say, I know, but I but I just like it, man. His beats are hard and you know, all that stuff. So, so Drake's done a very good job on that kind of. Uh, um, although it, again, if you get to any like grown-up hardcore hip-hop fans, they'd be like, Nah, Drake sucks. Post Malone sucks. Uh, but you know, Drake has done a great job hitting that same sort of like he can connect to people from, you know, different backgrounds and, and, and that's how you get on the top 40. That's how, you know, you sell out arenas and all that. Um, but anyway, so, um, speaking of kids, uh, we can move on to, uh, our parenting segment, uh, which is kind of our, our last real segment. Um, so Jeff, uh, this week or even today, um, uh, so uh, my my daughter is kind of learning that the she can try to throw the ball for the dogs and they'll go chase it, chase the ball and then bring it back. Oh, yes. So he's like, this is cool. But, you know, a 14 month old doesn't have neither the strength nor the coordination to actually throw a ball. So she kind <laughs> of like, she'll make a motion and then just kind of drop the ball towards the ground. So today we were kind of trying to play with her and, and show her. My, my sister was over and, and with, with Amanda, we were just kind of, we had this ball out and it's like kind of this like spiky plastic, like soft plastic ball. And uh, we were trying to like throw it towards her and then kind of show her how to throw, like do the motion. It was kind of big. So we we're trying to show her like two hands to throw it. And she kept kind of doing this motion where she just kind of was like serving it on a platter, like kind of underhanded like she'd like stick her fingers out like her hands out towards you 
like them t tie together and then the ball would just kind of roll off the tip of the fingers. And so I was like, that's pretty funny, you know. I'm going to try to like do what she does back at her. And I'm expecting it to kind of lightly toss over at her. And I do this kind of wrist flick and it just comes super fast off of my hands. I'm about four feet away from her, walks <laughs> right in the cheek. Bounces off. She just looks, she's looking at me like, what the hell is going on? The little spikes on the plastic ball make little dots on her face. I'm thinking, oh, God. Like, what am I <laughs> Amanda's like, why did you throw it that hard? I'm like, I, I didn't know. I didn't mean to. I didn't know. Like, when she did it, it just rolled off her fingers. I thought that's kind of what I was going to do when I did it. Like, like, I didn't know it would kind of projectile towards her face. So, um... I won. I I'm expecting some dad of the year trophies for that for um, throwing a ball at my child's face uh, directly from a short distance away. Uh, she did not cry. She didn't. She was a little in shock. Uh, <laughs> uh, she, she was a little stunned, and she didn't quite know what was going on. Um, but you know, she probably won't remember it, which is one of the best parts about uh, having a 14 month old. Oh, that is. Honestly, the best part about children is that they are so resilient. Like, no matter how badly we screw up, they pretty much always recover. Right. So that's that's always the best part is that, you know, they whatever it is that we've done, even if we're just, you know, being a jerk or whatever, like it just, you know, they just are like, you know what? I still love you, Dad. And that's always that's always really nice. So. I don't have any great stories from this week. Um, I do have a story. The best, the best I can probably do is uh, uh, yesterday we uh, we were going to drive out to uh, Mount Rainier. Now we know that Mount Rainier is mostly closed right now, right? Uh, because of the government shutdown. So, uh, but we had a, a gift certificate for the Copper Creek Inn, which um, if anybody, um, if you've never been out to Mount Rainier National Park and you are planning on doing it at some point. Um, and you plan on going into the Nisqually entrance, which is the one on the other side of Ashford um, that all the all the climbers go in and you head up to Paradise. Um, the uh, there's a there's a a little lodge and restaurant about two miles outside the gate called the Copper Creek Inn. Um, and they are their food's excellent. But the thing they are most well known for is a blackberry pie. And it is easily the most heavenly delightful uh blackberry pie and so we had a gift certificate we were going to use so we took the kids out there well the other thing they, they serve a really good breakfast so we're like okay we're going to go out there and have breakfast on a, on a monday and we get out there and discover that their winter hours are uh, they don't open till 11 and we get out there at 10 and so we're like well crap so we drive up we go and drive up to the mountain and we think you know we'll find a little uh find a little trail and, and do a little hike and um you know just kill some time that way and and so we went ahead and did that after talking with the two rangers who were not being paid and telling us at the gate that, well, because of the shutdown, we are not authorized to collect payment. So here you go. Um, you can drive up to Longmire, which is about six miles in, and you can't drive any farther past that. So anyway, so we go to this trail and we start walking. And then I, I suddenly remember that we, we – we, I knew we had been on the trail before, but I hadn't really thought about how long it had been. And there's a part of the trail where it has a tree that's kind of hollowed out um, on the inside. And so um, we had the boys. I, I just had a faint recollection of having the boys at one time stand inside the tree and take a picture. And so um, mm -hmm. 
So we did it again, and then it took me probably half the day to find the other picture, but I finally did. Picture was from seven years ago, so of course this is not great podcasting because you can't see it, but maybe I'll try and put the two pictures up on uh, up on the, the website um, where our, where our podcast resides and just, but as a parent, like it was just kind of one of those fun moments to compare these pictures side by side of the kids, you know, seven years later standing inside yeah. the same tree. So, um, not really a funny moment, but, but kind of a nice sentimental moment. I'm sure, you know, there are a lot of parents out there that kind of get the same deal when they, when they see pictures pop up from years ago or whatever. So, um, so it was, it was pretty, pretty cool. Very cool. Very cool, Jeff. Um, uh, you know, I'm always jealous of like, uh, you'll see these parents that like took a picture of their kid in like the same position, like every day for years or whatever. I'm like, oh, never thought of that. And also, I know that I would never, never stick to that. Like, yeah. I, oh, no, I forgot. Um, I forgot the last three days. So I'm just not, let's bag it. I don't care anymore. Yeah. But, but yeah, like, so it's cool when you can uh, kind of go back take some pictures. I actually have a, a somewhat similar story. Um, so uh, I try to always make it up to yearly the uh, Chuck's Hop Shop in the Seattle Central District, uh, their uh, anniversary party, which is always in kind of mid to late January, whenever they have the weekend, they can get the. So they, they bring in a lot of beers from, you know, out of the, you know, out of our distribution network, uh, you know, out of state, or, or the, and they'll, just, they'll save up some of the best beers, you know, from the Seattle area and put them on tap, like, for that event. So, like, they always have this great event. And and, um, and so last year uh, we took, you know, you can you can bring kids and dogs and stuff into um, Chuck's Op Shop. And so we last year we took B and she was about, you know, two months old. And uh, she was in this harness that was for correcting her uh, she had a hip dysplasia issue, and, and um, so uh, we took a, uh, they took a picture with me with my beer holding B. You know, she's kind of like a little more than a houseplant at that point. Um, and so this year I brought her back, and just totally different, obviously. Um, uh, brought her up. Uh, it was just me, and I met uh, her uncle, uh, Amanda's brother, and, and some of his friends up there, which is always nice to have that sort of like uh, backup with the kid when you're out on your own. Um, she, of course, w- when we arrived at the bar, had vomited up her uh, breakfast. Um, so uh, I got to uh, wipe her off um, and, uh, uh, you know, in the middle of the street in Seattle, just kind of like wiping off, like, you know, using a thousand, um, uh, uh, wet wipes to just kind of get everything off of her. And, and then, uh, she kind of had the faint smell of like stomach acid, which if you drink enough sour beers, which they had a lot of sour beers on tap, it's, you know, it kind of blends in fine with what people were drinking there. So I didn't feel too bad. Um, but so we get in and I made sure to take a similar picture with her in my arm and, the, and a beer in hand. And so I'm thinking maybe every year we'll go back and I'll take a picture with her at the, uh, the uh, Chuck's Op Shop Central District anniversary party. And maybe I'll have a nice little story, uh, you know, after uh, 10 years and something I can embarrass her with. That, yeah, that's a good idea. And that's pretty, that's a pretty easy one to do. That doesn't require a heck of a lot of commitment. No. Like some other, like some other things might. Yeah. I mean, cause if, uh, I mean, I want to go to that event and usually I'll 
just have to bring the kid. I can't just leave the kid at home. So Amanda was working that day. So it was like, well, I got the kid with me. I got the kid with me. So she's going. Like she's okay. allowed. If you have that's if if you're into into drinking craft beer, like if you find a place that allows the kids, like you 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 jump on it. Like that's that's where you go. Like especially in Seattle where that's kind of limited or you know the Seattle area. So. Um, yeah, and you'll notice whenever there is a place, it's just like swarming with kids. <laughs> like, and I uh, also think that's the best way to parent, to be honest, is, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, you have kids and they become part of your family, right. you know, and so you just, you know, you, you, you bring them into the fold of the things that you do. And obviously certain things get limited. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but you know, you bring them into the things that you do and you bring them into your life and, um, you know, they learn to appreciate those things and, um, you know, you learn to spend time together. Joshua still likes to tell people about the time that I took him to the tap room and, and I got a beer and he got a, a Sprite that was actually in a glass, in a glass bottle. Ooh. And so, you know, the, the bartender had to like pop the top for him and uh, he just thought that was the coolest thing. So he got to sit down and have his Sprite and I had my beer and he still will tell people about the time that he went to, uh, went to the beer place with daddy. And I was like, well, so then I try to explain it because you know, sometimes I get, um, as Craig has mentioned, I am a Christian. And so sometimes I get some sideways looks from people and I just kind of go, well, you know, I had the beer and, and he had, uh, he had a soda and, he had a and maybe, yeah, fun. maybe. I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't approve of having him in Satan's den to begin with, but, um, you know, I promise you he did not, uh, he did not touch any alcohol. So, well, I'll, I'll say, and this is kind of, uh, some preaching here, but I, I think it's fine to show your kids that alcohol is something that it can be taken in moderation instead of them always getting the message that like alcohol always damages everything. Like if, 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 if they see this, it, as a sort of a casual thing, maybe they won't think it's such like this evil thing, uh, and which can have the, you know, of course, the opposite effect when they're a teenager of like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. So I'm going to do a ton of it. Or, you know, when they go to WAC or whatever, like, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in kids seeing you do something like that. That's an, an, an adult thing in moderation and, and, and kind of learning that you can do those things in moderation and they can just be something that's that's a social thing or, or you know something for fun rather than you know alcohol isn't just for getting super drunk yeah and and given that so much of parenting seems to be like looking at your parents and being like i am not going to do that right um i am a product of that very thing and so yes that's it's very important to me that my kids um, don't grow up thinking that um, all of these things are evil and that they see that, you know, it's OK to 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 have a beer or two or maybe even three, but maybe not ten. And so, you know, it's like uh, th that's something that that I'm committed to with them is just sort of saying, look, you know, yeah, we can be responsible. There are certain things that are for adults and we can be responsible and someday you'll be old enough to make your own decision on that. And, um, you know, who knows if that's right and who knows if that's going to, you know, keep my kids from abusing uh, substances. But but I, I, I do know that in my life, uh, my parents shouting at me that alcohol was evil and it will ruin you um, didn't exactly keep me away from it. So um, I think I'm I'm trying to avoid that strategy. Right. Yeah. So uh, now, now that we've we've uh, we're firmly on our pedestals. That's uh, right. We're going to have to <laughs> climb down off our soapbox now. Climb down. Uh, try not to trip because uh, they're pretty high up. That's uh, right. 
so you know, dude, I have a 14 month old. I know everything about parenting. All right. Come That's on. right. You are now an expert. We are yeah. all experts. Every yeah. last one of us. All right. So um, we'll kind of begin wrapping these things up anywhere. Um, I, I like to sort of end every podcast, Jeff, if uh, uh, this podcast sucks, uh, do you have something better to listen to? Yeah. So this week I was listening to um, Hoop Vision, Ooh. which is uh, which is a podcast from a guy named Jordan Sperber. And uh, he is a name that probably a lot of people don't know, but he's he's a college basketball analytic type. Um, I first became aware of him. I don't even remember how many years ago it was, but it was probably five or six or maybe even seven years ago, something like that. Um, but he was a guy who won a uh, basically a contest um, that basketball prospectus and a number of other analytic minded basketball people um, put on. And they basically said, hey, come at us with your best basketball analysis. And they they basically did it like a almost like an American idol type format, you know, where they, and they got this like panel of judges, you know, included people like, like Ken Pomeroy, um, like Kevin Pelton, who some people might know from uh, ESPN. Um, so like all these like really just smart basketball analytic dudes. Well, this guy won. Um, I think they did it twice. He won one of them. Um, and so I've, you know, had the occasion to, to message with him a little bit right after that happened. And, um, anyway, super smart dude spent the last three years actually coaching, um, doing video analysis and analytics for, um, I believe first, uh, I'm drawing a blank on where he was first, but I know the last couple of years he was at Nevada, Mm -hmm. um, working with Eric Musselman. And then this year he decided to kind of leave that and then, um, kind of do his own, uh, his, his sort of his own consulting thing, I think, but it also involves uh, a podcast. It involves a weekly YouTube video and also involves an email newsletter. So I subscribed to all of them. Um, really, really smart guy. In fact, he did a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago or about a month ago around Christmas time about the transfer quote epidemic in uh, college basketball. And he looked up some data from the NCAA and um, to kind of try and put some real numbers to these transfers that people think are just sort of this again, epidemic. Um, and the numbers were sort of surprising um, in terms of where guys actually land, whether they go up or down or lateral moves. Anyway, you should listen to it. Um, it's hoop vision. And if you want to listen to the transfer epidemic, I think it was, I don't know, December 23rd or 24th. So really good listen. Um, I think it'll educate you a little bit about transfers and why they happen in college basketball and and what the reality is in terms of um, just the overall picture versus um, what sort of the perception is. The one big stat, I'll just throw this out here and you can go listen to it, but um, 54% of kids who transfer from a Division I school transfer to a lower level of basketball. So they either go to Division II or um, junior college or NAIA. So 54%, over half, actually leave Division I altogether, which is kind of a wild stat. So yeah, go listen to him. He's a smart dude. He'll make you smarter about basketball. Smarter than listening to us, for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we kind of we kind of delve dip our toe into some of the stuff that he talks about. Um, but if you if you if you liked that uh, earlier segment about rebounding margin, uh, he he's kind of a, 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 a next level of that. Um, so uh, my podcast this week is uh, I, 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 I would hope a lot. So I'm going to ride the company line, the SB Nation company line here. Um, uh, so one of my all-time favorite just writers, period, is Spencer Hall, um, and I think Jeff, you think that too. Um, uh, yeah. He's he's just phenomenal uh, storyteller, writer, uh, hilarious um, individual. But uh, so 
actually a, a restrained version of him, but also kind of more, that's also still pretty on brand with him, is a podcast called It Seemed Smart. Um, and it, it's, uh, it's, you know, an SB Nation produced podcast. Basically, they take um, uh, one event uh, every uh, uh, episode and dive into it. Uh, talk, and it's always something that probably turned out bad or maybe should have turned out bad and they got lucky and it didn't. Um, so um, he goes into topics like the first, uh, the first uh, Tour de France, which was <laughs> really funny. It's like we dive into it and uh, um, he's talking about um, uh, uh, this guy who did the cannonball run and set the record um, in, in, in uh, Albert Bell's uh, infamous uh, time he got uh, accused of having a corked bat. Um, and those are just some of the examples of some of the topics. Um, and so he just takes, I think the, it's about 30 minutes each episode. They did about six, I think six episodes. So it's really not, you know, it's something you can kind of consume pretty quickly um, and pretty easily. I, I, I listened to most of it just like doing housework one weekend. Um, and uh, it's just Spencer Hall telling the stories. He gets... Uh, he gets uh, Holly Anderson, and who's another writer, in on one of them. I kind of wish she was on all of them because she's really funny as well, and the two of them have a really good dynamic. They both uh, have written for a website where Spencer, they both kind of, I think, got their, you know, their fame began, which is uh, everydayshouldbesaturday.com, uh, which uh, is an SB Nation site as well now, and um, so they, uh, it, it's, it's a really enjoyable, you know, it's just one, if you, especially if you like, um, those podcasts that just kind of dive into a topic each week, uh, and, and just kind of pick at it and, um, and it's pretty, it's pretty great. And so I highly recommend it. it's called It Seemed Smart. And obviously you can find that anywhere. Um, and speaking of finding podcasts anywhere, uh, Jeff, you've been, you've been doing some legwork and, uh, where yeah. are we available now? Yeah, so you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Google Play if you have the Google Podcast app. Um, you can find us on Spotify and Stitcher. Stitcher, I think, also. Yeah. And then also, if you have the, uh, our website is hosted, the website for the podcast um, is hosted on Podbean. So uh, Podbean also has its own podcast player. So if you have the Podbean app, obviously you'll be able to find us there. On Podbean, so yeah, you can pretty much at this point you can find us uh, anywhere that that you for for just about any app that you would most of you would use, um, and I know that uh, if you use something like Overcast and you're on um, iPhone on an iPhone, that's what I use. Um, now that it's in iTunes, it should show up in the directory on Overcast. So um, yeah, you should be able to find us wherever wherever you find your fine podcast, wherever fine podcasts are sold, right? And, uh, yeah, you can subscribe and, and be one of our, our literally dozens of listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how many come back, uh, yeah. uh, this week, you know, um, but yeah. So, uh, you know, if you, uh, want to just have the podcast kind of randomly show up in your Twitter feed, uh, you can follow my, uh, the Craig powers, Twitter, um, I think I tweeted it out a couple times this week. Um, and then, uh, if you like pictures of my baby and my dogs and beer, uh, you can follow me at Craig W 
powers on Instagram. If you can guess what the W stands for, I'll uh, mention you on the next podcast. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, so um, I think uh, we coming in about the same amount of time. I thought I really thought we were headed to a shorter podcast for a while there. <laughs> I did too. <laughs> but, but yeah, so that's uh, uh, that's that's all we got for you this week, and uh, we'll be back uh, next week with more WSU basketball politics and everything else you hate. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening.